This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks Longer in the Future for Investors. Professor is is off this week. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting deep dive today with Sam Burns, who founded Mill Street Research, or an independent research provider. He's been the managing member, chief strategist, since it launched just over five years ago. Uh, we're going to talk to Sam about his background, what he looks at, for the markets. What do you think about the markets today? Sam, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. So tell us, uh, you founded your firm five years ago. What was the the vision? And uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you came to to start your own company. Yeah, well, so I've, I've been doing, uh, you know, kind of uh, strategy research, you know, equity market primarily, but, you know, asset allocation and uh, quantitative strategy research for a long time. Um, and been doing it in a number of different kinds of firms, uh, you know, small independent firms and large, big, you know, banks, uh, kind of, you know, investment bank research firms. And so basically want to take, you know, the, the, the best of what I'd found over the years and put it all together and be, you know, be able to do it independently, meaning no, have no, you know, uh, kind of committees telling me what I can and can't do and have no other, um, you know, uh, competing uh, you know, con- conflicts of interest, essentially, no investment banking, no trading, you know, just pure research uh, to, to, to provide to clients. So, um, so that's kind of the, the general idea to take you know, a lot of what I've done over the years and put it all together and be able to, uh, you know, build it and control it myself uh, without having, you know, too much uh, kind of interference or, or worries about conflicts. Uh, so I think that's the, the, the benefit of the independent kind of, uh, you know, boutique research uh, business model is that you can get a, a more, you know, kind of, you know, pure uh, version of the research, uh, you know, kind of undiluted uh, so that I have no constraints about what I'm, I'm bullish or bearish on, uh, which is nice. How would you say the research, you know, the market for research has changed over the course? I mean, you certainly you're mentioning sort of the banks have their own set of issues. Uh, how would you say, you know, as as consumers of your research, how has that market changed over time? Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. You know, back in kind of the, the older days, um, most research, you know, was paid for by trading commissions, and which were significantly higher uh, back in you know, kind of the 80s and 90s, even early 2000s. And uh, so a lot of the, 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 the drop in the commission rates that are paid uh, f- uh, for trading has also led to a drop in the amount of money available to pay for outside research uh, for a lot of, uh, you know, buy-side investment firms. And, of course, most of the clients that I've dealt with over the years have been institutional clients, not kind of retail individual investors. So uh, the, that client base has seen a big change in how they buy research um, and the amount of money they have to spend on it. And of course, a lot of the, there's been a lot of rule changes over the years as well, um, particularly in Europe with the MIFID rules and things like that, uh, where they've, they've made much more explicit uh, how 
companies can pay for research, uh, you know, how they have to go about it. So it's definitely changed the, the, the landscape a bit, but it has, in fact, in some ways made independent firms uh, a little bit more on equal footing with, with the big shops just because uh, having a trading desk to be able to pay for research, essentially, which is what you know, kind of the, the model was in the, in the older days, uh, isn't really as big of a thing anymore. I mean, more, it's more kind of direct payment, uh, which, which can work as well for a small shop as a big shop. So, uh, so in some ways, it, it's good in terms of the, you know, the model, but the, I would say that the amount of money, uh, kind of the total market, has probably shrunk. Um, so, uh, so there's been kind of offsetting you know, influences from, from a business standpoint. Yeah, no, I could imagine it's definitely been a it's it's an interesting interesting area, um, and so it, when you think about like what sets you apart from some of the other competitors and 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 the the approach you bring, let's talk a little bit about the process of, you know, how you look at the markets and what you you know what you think your your key edge is in terms of you know providing that color and context for people. Yeah, so I think um, a lot of what uh, I do that's maybe a little different than what you know see elsewhere is. Uh, essentially trying to combine what we think of as top-down and bottom-up uh, you know, inputs to the process. So uh, I do both you know, asset allocation and uh, stock selection globally. So what that means is that um, I, can use, I have a set of indicators and models and things that I look at for asset allocation, which use all of the traditional kind of major market indexes and economic data and, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, cross-asset things, but also have a global stock database, uh, you know, that, that tracks a lot of different indicators, including earnings estimate revisions, you know, prices, valuations, things like that. And I can then take that data and aggregate it up to, say, industries or sectors or countries and get uh, a view of kind of what the bottom-up fundamentals are doing uh, and trends are uh, on these different sort of levels of asset allocation. And then those two things together give me, I think, a much more complete picture of, of what's happening and, and allows me to drill down uh, you know, as granular as I want to or go up to as high a level as I, as I want to, depending on what, what the client's interests are. So I think that's kind of the uh, the distinction um, that most clients notice is that there's that sort of you know full range from kind of top down uh, to sort of the the, the stock level data uh, that that helps you know provide a more complete picture. And and are those bottoms up indicators used to form the top down view, or is it you know you have to look at different cycles, uh, different different types of things to go, you know when you when you go super top down, is that you know, literally top down and you have a set of indicators to form your asset allocation views or is it informed by the individual stock positions? No, it's definitely uh, uh, in part driven by the bottom-up indicators. So I'll, I'll take, say, the earnings estimate revisions data and then roll it up into, you know, industries or sectors or countries um, and see where the relative strengths and weaknesses on a more fundamental basis, I kind of think of it as fundamental momentum, uh, to, to track, you know, where analysts are, say, raising estimates, you know, most aggressively uh, across, you know, regions uh, or across, you know, sectors and industries. And I use that as a as an input uh, to, you know, deciding which sectors or, or industries or countries that I uh, will allocate to on a sort of on a top-down basis. So, so I'll merge that with, you know, big picture views on interest rates or on, you know, macro policy and things like that. Um, but, but I want to see, you know, corroboration from those kind of bottom-up, you know, stock-level uh, indicators uh, that are just, you know, just, you know, aggregate, aggregated up uh, to, to, to higher level, uh, you know, sectors and countries and things. Uh, and, and I found that in a lot of cases, there's a big benefit to that, um, that, that knowing, particularly since a lot of economic data and things like that are not designed, you know, kind of for forecasting 
stock prices. They're designed for other purposes, and so uh, so having a thing that is more more directly connected to the companies and the stocks that you're you're really interested in uh, is a big benefit. Um, so so having sticking quite a while, it's a lot of you know a lot of time and effort to build up all this data and build the indicators and models that go with them. But uh, but it's turned out to be very useful. So so maybe let's start at the very highest level then, and uh, I, you know I, I think one of your your reports looks at you know sort of equities versus bonds, um, and you sort of think about like a standard model. Um, I, it sounds like you're you're looking at a standard sixty forty as a baseline, and and then sort of tilt around that. Maybe talk about you know how much you'll tilt around and where you're what what's informing of you today. Yeah, that's right. So from kind of a big picture, stocks versus bonds, uh, you know, fixed income kind of allocation standpoint, um, I mostly look at things on, say, a three to six month horizon. It's kind of the, you know, the, the time window I'm thinking about because most of the clients that I talk to kind of think in those terms. Um, and so I have a set of indicators that helps kind of guide you know, whether I want to be overweight equities relative to that 60-40 kind of stock bond benchmark you mentioned uh, or underweight. Um, just because that's, again, how a lot of institutional clients think. They'll rarely be completely out of equities or uh, completely out of bonds. Uh, but right now, you know, for instance, uh, we've been overweight equities. Uh, so we're at you know, 70% equities um, and you know, 30% fixed income um, and have been for quite a while now, I guess, months and months, because um, the model really started getting bullish kind of August, September last year and has stayed bullish uh, since then. And so that's been picking up both the trend in, in equities, you know, the decline in volatility, uh, but also things like um, you know metals prices, industrial metals, commodities like copper and things have been doing better than say you know gold and silver, uh, and you know credit spreads in the, in the fixed income market have really compressed a lot, which is you know, tends to be a good sign uh, that you know the credit markets are stable. Um, so there's a lot of both equity and cross asset indicators that go into that, and you know say that it's it's been it's been uh, a good time to be bullish and still is. Uh, so we're staying staying with our overweight stance. Uh, we think. Uh, you know, equities can can continue to to work their way higher. Maybe not quite at the same pace, but but they still work their way higher. And then it's better to be kind of more risk on than than risk off. Yeah, like we we've been talk we talk about that sixty forty on behind the markets quite a lot. You know, and Professor Siegel, who I've worked with for twenty years, has been been saying you know he calls the seventy five twenty five the new sixty forty, and so very much aligned with I think <laughs> how you're positioned. Um, but you know, if you were to say the factors that would get you to go risk off, and maybe you could even talk through how you thought about things through 2020, like what would be the signposts for you to dial down the equity model? Um, you know, where what 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 are the things that you'd be looking for to trigger, you know, going more conservative uh, away from stocks? Yeah, I think the the first thing uh, that would probably happen that we'd be watching for would be if uh, risk appetite starts to weaken within equities. So there we're looking at, you know, whether the most volatile stocks in the market start to kind of lag the more, you know, lower risk defensive stocks uh, within equities and across, you know, sectors. For, for quite a while now, we've tended to see, you know, the higher beta, higher risk stocks outperforming, you know, the lower risk stocks, which is, which is a good sign. Because usually the first thing that happens is that people start to kind of shift from riskier stocks into less risky stocks. And then eventually, if things continue to sort of deteriorate, then they'll get out of stocks entirely or, or you know, lower their, their actual equity allocation. Um, so that'd be the, probably the first thing I would see. see. You'd see that tend to be along with you know, weaker momentum in kind of the major indexes um, and then a pickup in, in volatility. Uh, you know, the equity market, you know, has 
been fairly low volatility for a number of months now. And so as you start to see volatility pick up and risk appetite you know, slip, that would be kind of step one. Then you'd maybe start to see things, say, in, in credit, uh, you know, that, that if credit spreads start to widen, uh, you know, maybe, um, you know, like I say, those kind of like things like global growth indicators like the industrial metals prices start to weaken, suggesting that, you know, global growth might be slowing, uh, that those kind of tailwinds start to kind of fade away. Then you say, all right, maybe there's a little bit more of a fundamental, you know, driver here. It's not just investor sentiment. Um, and that that would mean probably step two towards getting more defensive, more cautious. Um, so those are kind of the things that are in the, the model that I use and that I kind of look at uh, to see uh, whether there are, you know, signs that people are starting to uh, to step away from the riskiest assets and, and then if, if the fundamentals start to change. Uh, and then also, you know, I certainly look at the earnings estimates. Um, they're still, they've been rising aggressively for quite a while now and still are. Um, once that kind of stops or maybe starts to go in the other direction, you know, that would tell you that, again, a tailwind had been removed, uh, and then you're sort of in a, you know, at least a sideways, if not a, a maybe a slightly negative view. Let me introduce our guest. We're talking with Sam Burns, um, the founder, chief strategist at Mill Street Research about his his independent research firm, Asset Allocation Views. Uh, we started, you know, very top down on on how he's thinking about the sort of overweight to equities, underweight to bonds and cash. Um, is there is there anything within bonds or or cash? Anything that that you think is is more interesting today? Is, is there a uh, a segment of the non-equity segment you, you sort of interested in or just you just generally think people should go in in broad portfolios of, of bonds there um yeah for the most part i think um you know that the most of investment grade fixed income right now at least tends to sort of you know move together and probably won't um you know give you too much downside but also too not too much upside um i think it'll be fairly well contained uh, for the most part um, you know, credit, you know, high, high yield credit um, has done very well and, and sort of is, is, is holding up. Uh, I think the fact that credit spreads there are so narrow now relative to history means maybe there's not a whole lot farther they can go, uh, that there's that there's a limited amount of upside in some sense there um, because they've already, you know, they've already done a lot uh, of kind of the, the yield spread compression. Um, now, what's changed really since last year, of course, is that the Fed has made it known that they are now willing to become involved in the corporate side of, of the debt market, that they're willing to step in if things get really bad and support, uh, you know, corporate debt and, and even high yield debt, which they really had never done before. Um, so I think in some ways that has also changed the market a little bit in the sense that investors will now uh, have, have at least some expectation that if we do see, you know, bad economic times again and, and credit spreads really widening, that there's this chance that the Fed will step in, uh, which we really didn't, like I say, see before. And so I think that's one of those policy level things that has shifted over time. And that's why I think I think interest rates in general and certainly the Treasury market is much more under the control and kind of influence of the Federal Reserve uh, and policymakers than maybe it has been uh, in, in past years, certainly since 2008, but even just since, since last year. Uh, they've made it clear that they're willing to do whatever is necessary to get interest rates um, where they want them. Uh, so I think that's why I think the fixed income market in general probably won't do anything too crazy um, for a while. I think there's still a lot of demand for fixed income. There's a lot of money out there you know, looking for you know, some kind of you know, income. Uh, and there's a lot of debt that would you know, cause problems if interest rates really went up a lot. But I think uh, overall, uh, there's not a lot of 
great upside in fixed income, but it is a, you know a, a source of stability in some cases for the part of your portfolio you don't want to expose you know to risk. And so if, you know things get bad and stocks go down, people will still buy bonds. Uh, but I think it's just uh, it's just much more limited now than than it has been in the past. Yeah, I, we generally agree with that sentiment that uh, that bonds have been this great effective negative beta, negative equity beta asset, a good hedge asset. And, and I, you know, one of the things I worry about, or I, you know, I I wonder is like, will a bond sell off ever be the catalyst for stocks to go down? You know, and that if if you do have this inflation, higher inflation, could that change those dynamics? I mean, certainly no evidence of that yet. I mean, the inflation, there's some evidence. Um, the question is, is that correlation going to change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, now the big question right now is, of course, is the inflation we're seeing going to be transitory or is it going to persist for a while longer? And how is the Fed going to react to it, particularly given their recent change toward their average inflation targeting kind of policy where they're allowing you know, inflation to run a little bit hotter uh, and above their 2% target for a while? Um, just because they kind of missed the target for so long uh, and are willing to let it run a little bit more and let the economy run a little hotter. Uh, so far, they seem to be sticking to that, but, you know, things could change and, and they could feel more pressure to, uh, uh, you know, to, to respond to inflation if it goes on, you know, much better, probably past the end of this year. Um, so my guess is the inflation will, will, will calm down again and the Fed probably will not, you know, over tighten uh, or respond to it too aggressively as they maybe have at some points in the past. Uh, I think they're pretty wary of that. Um, and so I think they're willing to tolerate a little more inflation now. And so I think it's just it's unfortunate for bondholders because you're just going to get negative real yields um, for a while longer would be my guess. Um, so on a, you know after inflation, uh, holding bonds is still you know still a negative proposition, only mildly so, but but still not uh, still not great. You just finally had uh, well not finally but you have um, the St. Louis contingent at the Fed calling for more tapering. We had the Governor Waller um, who came from the St. Louis Fed head of research uh, with Jim Bullard, and Jim Bullard's been saying he's ready to taper. So interesting, the St. Louis contingent is is ready for the taper. Uh, we'll see how how others go go on this summer. Um, let, let's change topics to you know you, you talk we talked a little bit stocks and bonds uh, high level within stocks. You know, you, you look at things both internationally and then through sectors. Let's start with, you know, the other main topic of the day, um, re- really, in the last few weeks has been China. You've been underweight emerging markets. Maybe talk through how you look at emerging markets and came to your underweight. Um, what would, you know, again, you know, what, what would change or or how are you viewing what's going on in China right now? Yeah, no, that's been a big topic. We've gotten a lot of questions from clients about that. And, uh, yeah, we started getting more cautious on emerging markets back kind of April, May. Uh, we started to see a lot of deterioration in the kind of bottom-up aggregated earnings estimate revisions indicators that we track. Um, and we actually saw that both for China but also for emerging markets excluding China because, of course, China is such a big part of the emerging markets universe that you kind of have to, you know, separate them out sometimes and, and look to see, you know, what else happen, is happening elsewhere. But we've seen that, you know, relatively broadly across a lot of emerging markets, you know, Brazil, India, some of those places have also been weak. Um, so, you know, what we've you know, pretty much assumed is that China, of course, is, is having more of a 
you know, governmental influence on a lot of their companies, particularly some of the big tech companies, uh, things like that. And that's really hurt them. We've seen that uh, at the stock level, too, for those big Chinese names that have been under pressure recently. Um, but overall, the emerging markets have, I think, struggled with, with COVID, maybe, you know, particularly more than um, some of the you know, developed markets. Uh, you know, U.S. and Europe have, have certainly, um, you know, been well ahead on vaccinations compared to a lot of emerging markets. And so, uh, so I think that's still having an influence on, you know, corporate earnings and, and the growth rates and the investor sentiment toward emerging markets. Um, and I think, you know, overall, uh, there just hasn't been uh, the same level of stimulus uh, that, that, you know, the U.S. in particular, uh, which has been our biggest overweight, uh, had the biggest, you know, fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, coming out of, you know, uh, the, the COVID crisis last year. And that's been reflected in the bottom up, you know, earnings estimate data. Uh, so we've seen both kind of on a top-down basis and a bottom-up basis that the U.S. has been the leader uh, in terms of the response, and uh, a lot of the emerging markets, including China to some degree, have you know have, have lagged in that regard, and so that's 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 then filtered through to, uh, to you know the stock market returns. So that that's part of what we're seeing, and particularly recently, with, you know, with China kind of changing their their uh, their policies on on uh, a lot of these industries and, and companies over there. Um, it just gives people another reason to kind of be a little more skeptical of, of emerging markets. And so we're seeing that uh, you know, come through in returns as well as the, uh, the fundamentals. So, yeah, it's basically been more developed than emerging and, and more U.S. within the developed markets for, for a number of months now in our work. Now, you also do look at some other markets like the Eurozone and, and the U.K. Are, are those showing up on that earnings revisions in a, a more or in, in some of the other ways you look at the markets more positive in the U.S. In, in one of the reports I was looking at? Yes, and the, uh, Europe um, in particular, continental Europe, uh, XUK, uh, has been improving for a few months. Um, they've uh, kind of picked up, you know, more cyclical steam and have also been, you know, doing better on a, you know, COVID vaccination basis. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, Europe uh, has been an area where that has had more of that kind of value and cyclical exposure. Their sector, you know, weightings and things uh, have much more of that kind of industrial and, uh, you know, kind of uh, consumer uh, exposure than, say, the technology-heavy U.S. market, you know, where, where the big tech companies have such a uh, big weight. That's not the case in Europe. And so as the value and cyclical areas have had more of a tailwind, uh, you know, the last, you know, six to 12 months, that's helped uh, areas like uh, Europe and as well as uh, Canada to some degree, uh, which also has a lot of commodity and financials exposure and kind of value uh, areas. Um, so we've seen those you know, improving relative to where they were. Now, you know, it's hard for anyone to keep up with the U.S. essentially uh, on, our, on our indicators. But uh, basically, if you look outside the U.S., uh, you know, Europe is probably the, the, the strongest area right now uh, in our bottom-up work. And uh, like I say, has some, some other tailwinds. You know, they've been trying to do more with the fiscal policy um, on, on a pan-European basis, and they've uh, they've been doing better with uh, COVID vaccination, which is going to, I think, help them you know reopen uh, sooner um, than, than than they would have uh, otherwise. Um, this growth value debate. I mean, you mentioned some of the things going on in in some of these cyclical markets. You know, one of the questions has been how how interest rate sensitive that growth value debate really is, and I guess some of that could then bleed into these these other regional allocations. Do you have a a view how much rates should matter for that, and um, where rates you know might be heading to inform what could be doing well in a, in a lot of the future? Well, no, I think you're 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 right that uh, a lot of people have been using 
interest rates, um, particularly you know long-term U.S. Treasury rates, as a kind of indicator for whether growth or, or value should you know should outperform, with the idea that you know falling falling bond yields, falling rates are better for growth. Uh, both from sort of a discounted cash flow standpoint, but also from a if you think the economy might be slowing down or kind of having peak growth, uh, then you you, know, you want to rotate from the more cyclical areas back to the you know the growth areas. And we've seen some of that the last couple of months. Um, my view is that some of the decline in interest rates has been for non-economic reasons, I guess you'd say, um, partly because you know as you know the you know for instance the the, the uh, debt ceiling here in the U.S. Is, is hitting or just hit uh, July 31st, and so the U.S. Treasury issuance has fallen off quickly. But the, the Fed is still buying bonds, and banks are still buying bonds. So I think some of that has pushed demand for bonds that isn't really related to, to economic indicators as much as just the fact that there's a lot of money around and it needs some place to go. And if the Treasury isn't issuing, then you just have a sort of temporary supply-demand imbalance. Now, I think there are people making the argument that the, the biggest part of the stimulus is done, and you know we're kind of past the peak in, in GDP growth and things like that, and therefore it's time to rotate back to you know, to growth stocks. Um, my own view and what we're seeing in our bottom-up indicators at the sector and to some degree the regional level is that the the earnings estimates are still rising very aggressively for you know energy, materials, industrials. Uh, consumer discretionary, even financials. So you know, we're not seeing the analysts in terms of their earnings estimates shift back you know, to really favor earnings estimates for, say, grow, uh, technology or communication services, things like that. Um, so we don't see a kind of bottom-up fundamental reason right now to go back to favor growth over value or, or cyclicals. Um, it's been more of a, of a sort of investor sentiment and positioning thing and kind of probably an overreaction to the interest rate uh, move that you're talking about. Um, so that's why I think there probably will be a re- rebound in value in cyclical areas. Um, and, and the commodity prices are staying pretty elevated. They haven't really come down much. They kind of stopped going up a bit, but they haven't really come down. So that tells me that there's still a fair amount of global growth, um, that there's still, uh, you know, earning estimates may still have room to go up. In some of those areas, and they're 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 relatively cheap. Uh, you know, we've been looking recently at the valuation spread between the cyclical sectors and the growth sectors. And you know, cyclical sectors are always kind of cheaper than growth, but they're especially cheap right now, much much more so than they have been you know on average in the past. So I don't think that investors have really given them credit so far for the strength in the earnings that they're they're, they're seeing. Uh, that's why I think there's probably another round for them coming up soon. Well, we, we need to take a very short break, but uh, everybody stay with us. We're going to be continuing this discussion with Sam Burns of Mill Street Research right after a short break. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Okay, we're going to jump right back into it. All right. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. My guest today is Sam Burns of Mill Street Research. We're talking about uh, all of his indicators for looking at the markets. And, and Sam, we just finished uh, the first half with a conversation on the cyclical sectors uh, and some of the revisions you see there and, and sort of talking about the cheapness of them versus growth stocks. Uh, when you talk about your rotations and we talked a little bit about us versus foreign and now we're talking cyclicals versus growth 
How much does valuation play a role? Is it is it more your growth revisions and, and earnings sentiment data, or, or how much do you think valuation should dictate returns generally? Yeah, I would say that uh, valuations are probably not the, the biggest component of what we do. Um, I tend to think of it as uh, the kind of the backdrop or a, a sort of a risk factor uh, when, when valuations are really stretched in one direction or another, you know, they, they, they tend to get more my attention more, but a lot of times kind of in the middle, they're not as useful for timing, at least on the, the time frame frame that I mentioned, kind of three, six, maybe 12 months uh, looking out. Um, they can be much more uh, relevant in some cases for maybe, you know, three to five year views, longer term kind of strategic views. Um, and that's where uh, we tend to use, you know, valuations a little bit more. Uh, but because the majority of our focus is on kind of this intermediate term time frame, uh, valuations are kind of a secondary factor, I guess I would say, relative to the, the earnings estimate revisions, the fundamental momentum or price action or, you know, say, you know, things like macro policy, things like that. Um in terms of, you know, when you go through these models, um, you know, is it a lot of, you know, recommendations as tilting towards sectors or when you go down to try to identify the best themes in these, how, what do you think about looking at uh, getting to individual stock levels, talking about the bottoms up, bottoms up approach there? Sure. Yeah. And that, that's where, um, you know, we can kind of really merge the two is when we go from kind of big, you know, broad sectors, uh, which a lot of clients, you know, like to look at and sometimes, you know, we'll, We'll do allocation with ETFs and things, um, but then other clients will be looking for you know tilts uh, towards particular uh, sectors, but also then going down you know, more granular to the industry level. So I uh, say you know for semiconductors relative to software within the technology space, you know is, is like I say a common one, um, and th- you know things like that. And so when we find that the bottom-up data is actually particularly effective when you look at industry groupings and more narrow industry groupings. So you'll see like the housing, you know, household durables and things like that have been very strong for, for quite a while uh, in our work. And, uh, um, you know, things really to say like shipping, uh, both, uh, you know, air freight, you know, FedEx and UPS or, uh, you know, marine, you know, uh, shipping, things like that, uh, more, more specific areas, uh, whereas like airlines, commercial, you know, air travel has been relatively weak in our work. So if you just say, you know, kind of transportation that hides, you know, some, some distinctions uh, that are uh, where you can have very strong areas and very weak areas within the same kind of broad sector uh, bucket. And so, uh, so we found that they're getting a little more, more granular and looking for specific industries within sectors uh, can really, you know, add a lot of uh, value to, to finding where the strength and weakness is. And then you can go down to individual stocks within those industries and say, okay, here are the top five stocks within this particular industry based on their earnings estimate revisions, uh, their price momentum, and then their valuation. Those three kind of components are the drivers of the, the stock ranking model uh, that I've been using for uh, quite a while now, I guess, yeah, eight years now, um, that uh, uh, that allows to see where is the fundamental momentum, uh, where is the price momentum, and then where is the kind of the valuation support. So when you see all three of those things line up, you generally have a pretty good you know, tailwinds for a stock or an industry or a sector. Um, do, do you want to get? We, we talked a little bit about the cyclicals, uh, and when you when you're thinking about what, where, you know, what the these sector allocations, the, the cyclicals being the most favorable. 
Do you want to say anything about among the sectors um, that you're sort of less favorable on and anything to point out uh, within the trends of those unfavorable sectors, whether, you know, is it the earnings revisions, just people getting too excited about them uh, and 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 where where you are in the, on that, uh, what you're avoiding list? Yes, we've been underweight, kind of the defensive sectors primarily uh, for quite a while now, and that's in large degree, a reflection of our bullish view on, on equities and kind of that risk-on uh, view that I mentioned earlier, that our top-down indicators are telling us that it's time to be risk-on, that it's, you know, the, the markets are going up, and that basically you're not going to get, you know, any benefit from being in low beta, lower volatility, more defensive sectors or, or stocks. And so that, you know, pushes us away from, say, utilities or consumer staples uh, or even something like healthcare which has also seen uh, relatively weak earnings estimate revisions trends. There's been a few, obviously, pockets uh, of, of companies that have done, done well, but uh, for the most part, healthcare has been a, a, you know, a relatively weak area for, for quite a while. So, uh, so in terms of the, the sectors we, we don't like, uh, utilities, staples, and healthcare have been probably the, the most persistent ones. Uh, real estate was weak for a while, but it's actually been improving quite a bit in the U.S., so as a lot of the, you know, people have gone back to the malls and shopping centers and restaurants and things have started to open back up again, a lot of the commercial real estate, uh, you know, REITs and things that, that own those places have seen uh, improvement, and a lot of their earnings estimates are starting to go up now. Uh, that's not really the case outside the U.S. as much. So it's really the U.S. where we've reopened the most, I think, after COVID, that we're starting to see that. So that's kind of a, a regional difference. Uh, the U.S. real estate has been improving, and it's, it's more of a, a kind of a yield defensive area uh, as well traditionally. Um, so those are kind of the areas we've been seeing uh, on the on the less attractive kind of uh, side has been those areas, and then even in areas like within technology, uh, like software and IT services, kind of the the the, uh, the more kind of stable growth areas that haven't gotten the boost from all the hardware buying that's been going on in semiconductors and technology hardware, uh, they've been relatively uh, lower ranked in our work for a while now. So it's been more, you know, hardware over software and more high beta cyclicals relative to more defensive uh, or, uh, you know, kind of defensive growth like healthcare. You know, for for somebody who looks at a lot of industries, I've wondered how much, you know, when when I think about building models for different industries, um, you know, how much do you think customization needs to come in? You know, and I, you talked about like healthcare and, and certainly, you know, one segment that was hot with COVID was obviously the biotech stocks. And you think of some of the like drug companies, you know, that have very different models, or you could say may need a very different model than a utility or a software company or, or other companies. D do you try to customize per industry or is that is that just uh, getting you know too cute and, and you just find something works and it generally works generally? Yeah, I know for the most part, you know, we try to apply our indicators kind of consistently across all sectors and industries. And when we've done our back testing and things, uh, we found that for the most part, the same indicators used the same way tend to identify, you know, strong and weak stocks relatively consistently across all sectors. So, you know, we feel pretty comfortable applying the same methodologies consistently. And it, of course, makes it a lot easier for our clients to understand what we're doing and to kind of follow along in the sense they don't have to learn a different model or, or sort of inputs for different sectors and industries. Now, having said that, I will say that probably a lot of our clients um, who are, again, institutional investors and will have their own 
fundamental views, their own way of doing things, and use a lot of this as an overlay or as an input, not the only and final solar bullet solution. Uh, they will probably have their own, you know, uh, quirks or ways of looking at different sectors and industries, as, as you were describing, uh, where they'll they'll look at, um, you know, different business models and, and different uh, metrics for different sectors, um, and then kind of use what we're doing as an as an overlay or as an input to that. Um, so they'll they'll do that a bit themselves. Um, and so, and we can certainly help clients with that. You know, we, we will talk to them and, you know, we'll overlay different things with them on a customized basis if they, if they request it. So we, we do a lot of customized work for clients that takes this, the stuff that, uh, you know, we publish and, and adapts it to what they need. But overall, the, the idea is to give clients an objective, consistent approach that they can use, you know, day after day, month after month, and, and know what they're looking for, know what they're looking at. And, uh, and so if, you know, if analysts are raising estimates for a company or an industry, um, and the, the prices are responding and the valuations are reasonable, you know, those are pretty much always going to be good reasons to, to, to look more favorably on something. Let me uh, reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Sam Burns of Mill Street Research uh, about his unique way of looking at the markets. Um, you know, Sam, one, one of the things you you do, um, we talked a little bit about your high level, some of the sectors you also do some work on factors uh it's sort of factors become a common you know industry focus the explosion of etfs and other quantitative strategies maybe talk a little bit about how you've approached factors what you think is unique about it and and what what it's saying about the markets today yeah i know and that's that's the factor work is something uh i've been publishing you know more recently on a lot more and I'm, I'm, you know, pretty excited about. And a lot of that was sort of partly born out of my own frustration with trying to interpret the returns of different factors or styles. People use those interchangeably um, when it's clear that you know some factors have significant overlaps with other factors. So, you know, as an example, small caps or you know size as a factor um, are you know almost always more volatile as a group than large caps. Um, they also tend to be uh, less profitable on average uh, when you're looking at profit margins or return on equity, things like that. So if you just look at the relative returns, say, of you know, small caps versus large caps using traditional benchmark indexes that are based on just, just size, just the market cap of each stock, um, in isolation, you don't really know if the difference in returns that you're seeing is attributable to the size of the company or to something else that's kind of related to that, like volatility or profitability. So a lot of the factor work that I've been doing draws on some of the academic work that's been done that uses, you know, regression, you know, quantitative techniques to isolate a specific factor and then kind of purify the factor returns, as it's often called. So basically the idea is to try to strip out the effects of, you know, overlapping factors and get and just isolate the single factor that you're really interested in to see what it's doing all by itself. Um, so, you know, for instance, if I was going to estimate the returns to a portfolio of small caps uh, versus large caps, you would basically try to hold all other factors like volatility uh, constant so that that's not an influence on, on, the, on the size factor itself. And actually, earlier this year, uh, we did a study that showed that uh, last year, from sort of April to the end of the year, when it looked like small caps outperformed large caps by pretty wide margins, if you looked at you know traditional benchmark indexes, we found that actually if you accounted for volatility – I mean, the fact that small caps are just more volatile than large caps, then actually small caps didn't outperform at all. It was all volatility that you were getting kind of paid for. And then if you just bought high vol more volatile stocks and ignored size, you'd have done just as well or better. 
And so that kind of, you know, made, made it clear that, you know, you need to kind of look more closely to find out what's really driving returns and what you're getting paid for as an investor. And if you're holding a particular factor or being exposed to a risk, you know, is that the, really the risk you think you're taking or is it something else that's kind of being, you know, hidden or overlap with it? And uh, so that's what we've done. We've built a, a sort of stable of factors that are all adjusted for each other and also for sector exposure. Because, of course, as you know, um, a lot of sectors have biases toward, you know, cheaper stocks or more expensive stocks or you know, have higher margins or lower margins or more volatile, things like that. And so when you're making a sector bet or a factor bet, those will also overlap. Um, so if you buy a growth index, you're getting a lot of technology. If you buy a value index, you're buying a lot of financials in most cases. So we try to strip those things apart and see, is it the sector? Is it the factor? Which factor is it? And that gives us a lot clearer view of what's really going on uh, in in terms of you know what's driving returns. You want to talk through? Um, looks like you know your report has about eight different factors that you have focused on. Um, you know, do you want to talk through how you came to that list and and uh, a little bit more about the details besides the size and volatility factors we've talked about so far? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so we basically uh, have built a, a sort of a list of eight factors, which are you know kind of reflect a lot of the commonly used ones that are uh, in, in factor research and also in you know things like smart beta indexes or things like that. So we've got you know uh, a value factor by which is uh, represented by earnings yield. So what we've done is we basically picked one variable to reflect you know a specific factor as opposed to trying to make a whole hodgepodge of things like the, the uh, style indexes tend to do. Uh, so earnings yield, forward earnings yield uh, is, our, is our value factor. Uh, f- five-year trailing sales growth is our growth factor. Uh, we also have profit margin and return on equity as kind of quality or profitability factors. Uh, we use uh, leverage, uh, you know, debt-to-assets ratio for, for companies as a kind of a balance sheet risk factor. Uh, we have uh, beta and volatility as kind of stock price risk factors. And then we have size or you know, market cap as, uh, as kind of the traditional uh, you know, size factor. Um, so those are the eight factors that we use. And we also, like I say, account for uh, sectors, the 11 gigs sectors um, uh, that uh, overlap with these things a lot. So we, we, we build them on a sector neutral basis and then also on a factor neutral basis so that we're isolating only the effects of each of those eight factors individually and holding all else constant essentially. Uh, and doing that with, you know, with regression techniques. Um, And so the idea, what we found is that when you do that, uh, you actually find that the returns for each of the factors are less volatile and uh, more persistent than the factor returns you would get if you did not do any of the adjustments, if you just let all the overlaps and things happen. Uh, So what it means is that they are more uh, stable and more predictable than traditional factor returns. So if, if I see that, say, you know, earnings yield or sales growth is doing well uh, on a kind of a purified basis, I have a much more confidence that it will continue to do well, that it will persist over the next, say, three months, six months, than I would if I didn't do all those adjustments. Um, so you find when you strip out the noise, essentially, the signal is more persistent. Uh, you get a better signal-to-noise ratio uh, when you when you do this these kind of adjustments, and these factors in particular tend to you know pick that up uh, particularly well and go along with with what clients you know expect to see. Uh, so I can explain them easily, but also you know account for all of their their overlaps. 
What, you know, for the quant nerds, and we, we get a few of those listening into this show, <laughs> the uh, you know, it's in terms of going to the you know, using the regressions to adjust the global sector neutrals for for sectors and factors, you you want to talk through a little bit about the process. It's is it picking? You'll take a and and you're doing some of this stuff globally. So is it picking a universe? and you know sorting by these factors and and maybe sort of talk through the steps you would use to construct you know like a high roe factor product on a, on a global sector neutral basis with those adjustments oh right okay well yeah that's uh, <laughs> getting for the quant nerds out there um yeah so basically yeah we have a global database of uh, a little over six thousand stocks that uh kind of forms the basis for all this um and so what we do is for if we're going to build a global uh, ROE factor, uh, we would rank all stocks by all eight of the factors uh, that I listed individually and do that within each of their uh, GIC sectors. So you would rank by ROE, uh, you know, an energy stock would be ranked against other energy stocks by ROE globally. Uh, and they would also be ranked by volatility globally uh, within the energy sector. It would be ranked by profit margin and so forth. So each stock is ranked within its sector by each of the eight factors globally uh, to start with. And then uh, you, you, have, you take those and plug them into a, uh, a regression, a weighted least squares regression uh, that uses the square root of the market cap as the weights. So we're giving more weight to large caps, but not full market cap weighting, because then you get really, you can get a few mega caps that distort the whole thing. Um, so it's not equal weighted, but it's also not market cap weighted. It's kind of the happy medium in between. Um, and so what that gives us then are, uh, you know, beta coefficients, uh, you know, weights sort of for uh, the factor for each of those eight things. And you then basically estimate what the return to a top decile ROE stock versus a bottom decile ROE stock uh, would be holding all seven other factors and sectors constant. So you basically put in, you know, zero or sort of the, the, the median for all other factors and, you know, plug in 95th percentile or 5th percentile for, uh, uh, for ROE. Um, and then you, what that gives you is an estimate of what the return would be for a high ROE stock and a low ROE stock um, globally that is adjusted for all of the other factors and sectors. Um, and so we can do that for each of the factors, and we can also do it for sectors if we want to. Uh, but what it gives us then is, like I say, a purer version of uh, what the ROE factor is really doing. And we do find significant differences. When you, when you plot the charts out, you see that, that ROE without the adjustments and ROE with the adjustments do look different. Um, and so it, uh, it tells you that uh, when you, if you just buy ROE kind of blindly without any adjustments, you're getting a lot of other things along with it. You're getting a large cap bias. You're getting a higher profit margin bias. You're getting a lower volatility bias. Um, maybe that's what you want, or maybe it's not, but uh, at least you know you would be able to tell what's really driving it. Is it really ROE or is it something else? Um, but yeah, that's how we do it. And so we have it built for global universe. We have a North American universe, and we also have a European universe because those are our primary kind of client bases, um, to, you know, kind of North America and Europe uh, and global uh, in terms of what they're what they're looking for. But we can carve it up kind of however people want. Um, but it's uh, uh, it gives us a lot of flexibility having a broad you know, 6,000 stock global universe and uh, and the historical data for all these factors. Cool. And, and so it, it, when you think about when 
um, we talked a little bit about the cyclical sectors, uh, you know, as you think about the factors you're favoring um, in today's environment, is it, uh, you know, you think cyclicals, you think uh, value maybe, uh, maybe size or, or volatility, is, it, is that reflective or, or, or is the factors you're liking today different than, um, you know, some of the, the last times, you know, you, you were sort of risk on environment today? Yeah, I think generally speaking, the uh, kind of the risk on tilt comes through. Um, we're seeing the, the beta factor uh, still show up quite strongly. Um, so that tells us that there, there's, there's still a kind of risk on uh, showing up in factor returns, even after accounting for, for other, other things. Um, it was interesting, you know, for a while, the volatility factor, which is just pure trailing price volatility, uh, was the strongest. And now it's kind of given way toward beta which is uh, more of kind of the, the correlation with the benchmark, essentially. So stocks that move with the market or move more than the market are in favor right now. Um, and globally, we're actually seeing the, the leverage, the, the debt-to-assets uh, factor do well uh, more recently, which, which means that higher debt companies, stocks that have higher debt ratios on their balance sheet, are outperforming those with low debt. So it tells you that there's still an appetite for companies that – have you know more kind of operating leverage essentially, uh, and are, can take advantage of cyclical upswings in the economy and low interest rates, uh, which makes sense. You know, yeah, we still have a very low rate you know backdrop globally, and you're still seeing uh, kind of that uh, you know above average global growth rates uh, going on. Um, so there is that bias globally. We all we do see a bit of a, a small cap tilt. Um, you know, lower size is doing well globally. Um, uh, not so much in, in, in the U.S. and North America, but but outside of the U.S. more so. Um, so there, there's definitely still some things that tell us that it's a risk on uh, and cyclical environment. Um, the value has been more mixed lately. Uh, earnings yield as a factor uh, has, has very sort of strong, you know, probably say six month returns, um, and it's uh, but it's kind of flattened out and been a little more mixed in the last two or three months as the the growth kind of uh, performance has come through. Um, so that's been kind of uh, a little more mixed than it was, you know, say six months ago. But uh, but it hasn't, you know, really turned down aggressively. It's just not doing as well as it had been. Uh, but then the, the, our sales growth factor isn't – it's doing okay, but it's not, you know, leading the charge either. So in some ways, once you strip out the, the sector exposure and other factors, neither value in terms of earnings yield or growth is, is really the dominant factor. It's more, you know, beta – balance sheet leverage, um, things like that, uh, that are, are bigger drivers of returns right now. Um, and actually, ROE that you mentioned has picked up recently as well. Uh, higher profitability companies uh, have been doing better. So, um, so that's where it's kind of showing up, not in the traditional kind of value growth, uh, pure value, value and growth uh, kind of uh, factors. Yeah, that, that's interesting that it's not, you know, that, it, that these uh, you know, what some people have called this junk rally and or, you know, you're sort of seeing that with leverage, you're seeing that with the volatility factor and betas just just being that. Um, it, so is there is a indicator you were to say to rotate away from those things? What what is it? Is, is it uh, equity market risk? If you wanted to dial down your equity market risk, you might suggest to change factor tilts for people or how you know how would you think about changing your factor rotation strategies right so i think i mean generally speaking our kind of process is to kind of go with what's working use the kind of intermediate term momentum of these purified factors to tell us you know where to you know, where to tilt toward and where to tilt against um now if you kind of want to 
take a, a macro view or an, a- an allocation view and say, well, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm getting nervous and I want to dial down my risk, then yeah, then you could you could tilt towards, you know, you know, higher margin companies, uh, you know, uh, you know, higher sales growth companies, larger size companies. Those would be lower risk factors to look at. Um, as well as, of course, sectors like consumer staples or things that would be more defensive uh, if you thought that something, you know, there was going to be more of a negative tilt to the market. We have not seen that yet, so we're not recommending uh, a tilt away from the more cyclical or kind of uh, risk-on factors uh, or sectors yet. Um, But at some point, you know, that will happen. And I think, you know, it'll probably be the point at which policy looks like, you know, fiscal and monetary policy looks like it will no longer be as much of a tailwind and analysts have, you know, baked in all the good news into their earnings estimates. Um, that's probably the point at which you would start to see both the factors and the sectors start to kind of rotate, you know, more convincingly back toward, you know, growth or even, or even defensive uh, areas. Uh, so we haven't seen it yet, but that would be kind of the rotation you would look for. Um, and so when we see factors corroborating sectors and then corroborating the overall market view, you know, we have a lot more confidence when things line up. Uh, and, and so far, they've been lined up generally in favor of uh, of the higher risk, you know, cyclical areas, and still are. But you know, nothing lasts forever. Um, and so, uh, I would I would start to you know watch for that maybe as we get later into the year. Uh, we, we've had a pretty broad review of a lot of the the research. Uh, you know, I see you produce. As you think about how you add to your library of things, or where you're thinking about, you know, are, are there questions you're getting? Often from clients, what what's on people's minds? You know that that we haven't really talked about. Is there is there anything, uh, you know, concerning people or, or things that that you're struggling to answer? Well, yeah, I think you know some of it. Um, you know, you get questions about basically policy decisions, whether it's China or you know fiscal policy, you know, kind of politics, um, those kind of things, um, which are always a little more difficult for someone like me who's more. You know, tends to lean more on objective data and indicators, things you can measure and quantify and that have historical data that you can look at. Um, but it's become more important, you know, certainly in the, the last, well, certainly since 2008 and even the last couple of years uh, where, you know, policy has, has been a, a bigger factor. Um, you know, I, I get more questions about, you know, the crypto space and things like that, which, um, you know, it's kind of outside of my remit to some degree um, and, uh, institutional investors in general have, have only taken a few tentative steps in that direction. Uh, I'm not sure where that's going to go, but again, that boils down to, to policy and government regulation, uh, which is, is harder to, to you know to quantify. Um, so those are kind of the areas that are that are, that are more difficult. Um, and I think you know beyond that, um, you know we, we get you know questions about well, um, you know uh, are the indicators that you track are they. Are they well known now? Are they priced in? Are analyst estimates, you know, no longer as useful as they as they were? Um, generally speaking, we found that the, the the value of it has held up. Um, it's still, you know, useful to to track these indicators that that we're using. Uh, but some of them have had to adapt. You know, um, zero interest rates uh, as policy measure for years and years at a time means that you can't use you know interest rates as a as an input like you used to. Um, so we've had to kind of adapt some of the models and indicators we use to reflect the fact that, you know, in Europe, you, I'm not sure if we'll ever see significantly positive rates, uh, or at least not for quite a while. Uh, Japan certainly has been like that for, for a long time. So, you know, trying to analyze the Japanese bond market has been, you know, futile for, for years. 
because it's just whatever the Bank of Japan says it is, and it doesn't move. So, um, so I think there's been some some changes in the, in the structure of markets and the influence of policy that have altered the way uh, investors look at some of these things and and the way our indicators and things work. And so we've had to adapt along with, with that. Uh, but overall, I think for the most part, um, clients uh, you know have found that, found these indicators useful, and uh, and we you know we take things up as they, as they come, and and try to help whenever we can. Very good, Sam. If people want to stay in touch with your research or or, or find you, where, where can they uh, get in touch? Yeah, I think the easiest way is to, to go to MillStreetResearch.com. Uh, we have a uh, you know a thing there where you can contact us um, and uh, you know, send us any questions or anything that you might have, uh, and you know we can get back to you pretty quickly. Um, but there's a lot of information there about the work. There's sample reports and all kinds of things that you can see um, if you're interested in, in looking at it. Uh, there's also a, a Twitter account and a LinkedIn um, account that you can follow, uh, Mill Street Research. Um, that uh, we post things of a, of a blog that uh, we'll post on most weeks. That we'll give uh, you know sample commentary and macro views to kind of uh, give examples of what we're thinking and indicators that we look at. Uh, so there's a lot there that, that people can find if they're uh, interested in finding out more. Very good. It's been a fun conversation. We talked with Sam Burns, founder, chief strategist uh, of Mill Street Research. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. You can catch us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.